0: From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike canary William Taylor served as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009 during the George W. Bush and Barack Obama presidencies. He's been Vice President for Europe and Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace since 2015. It's a federal institution tasked with promoting conflict resolution and prevention worldwide. Ambassador Taylor returned to Ukraine in 2019 to serve as charge d'affaires, or sort of interim ambassador, at the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv after President Donald Trump fired the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. He remained in that role until early January of 2020. During the Arab Spring, Ambassador Taylor oversaw U.S. assistance and support to Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, and Syria. He also served in Jerusalem as the U.S. government's representative to the Mideast Quartet, and in Kabul, Afghanistan in 2002, and in Baghdad, Iraq in 2004. ambassador taylor was in town yesterday to give a talk for the naples council on world affairs titled 600 plus days of battle with volodymyr and vladimir we sat down with him at his hotel for a conversation about what's happening in ukraine since the russian invasion in february of 2022 among other things let's hear that now ambassador taylor welcome to gulf coast live thanks for taking some time to talk with us thank you mike it's great to be here for starters tell us what is the u.s institute of peace and what do you do there
1: Institute of Peace is an uh, entity uh, established by the Congress back in 1984, um, whose mission is to look for, seek ways to resolve or even prevent violent conflict overseas. The Congress established it. The um, Congress funds it every year. Um, we have offices in many different places around the world. We had, used to have a big office in Kabul, Afghanistan, for example. Another big office in in uh, in Baghdad, Iraq. Those are now there's no office, there's no office uh, in Kabul anymore. But small office in uh, in Iraq. We do work um, in conflict zones. I mean that's our mission. Again, all over the world, I focus on Russia and Ukraine um, and other areas where Russia is. Threatening violent conflict.
0: When was the last time you were in Ukraine?
1: Last October. I've been there five times since uh, the full fledged invasion back in uh, February of 2022, uh, and I'll be there again next month.
0: Um, how do you receive news and information in the world? Do you get it just like us, you know, civilians, or do you have some sort of like uh, inside track because mm. of the Institute for Peace?
1: No, no. Um, I don't have inside track. I do have a lot of contacts, friends, acquaintances, former colleagues uh, in Ukraine, and every time I go, um, I will make it a point to sit down with them. Some are in the army now, some are in government, some are not in government, some are former officials. There are a lot of people who are journalists, for example, and friends, uh, non-governmental organizations, civil society, just general friends, friends that I work with in the embassy, And I do stay in touch with them, and I do get information from them um, on what's going on in Ukraine. That's probably not widely available, but my main source is uh, is the media, you guys, Mike. And uh, the Institute of Peace gives me the ability to travel
0: back and forth, um, and that's really important for understanding what's going on there. So you served as ambassador to Ukraine from June of 2006 to May of 2009, starting under George W. Bush, ending under President Barack Obama. First question, big picture: How much is the job of an ambassador face-to-face communication with your counterparts or leaders, um, or just that's the question? How much of that is the job, or is it um, way more layered than that, Mike? It's it's
1: two-way communication. It's the job of the ambassador to represent the United States in, in this case, Ukraine, and have conversations with uh, Ukrainians of all sizes, shapes, uh, official capacities, unofficial capacities. Uh, So it's to, in that role, uh, the ambassador presents U.S. positions, um, U.S. policy, uh, describes U.S. security interests, U.S. political interests, U.S. economic interests, We do it the other way as well. That is, we listen um, to Ukrainians, all the ones that I just mentioned, um, official, unofficial. uh, And we report those positions, those opinions, those actions uh, back to Washington and make recommendations to our bosses uh, in Washington on what the policy toward, in this case, Ukraine should be, what the U.S. policy on Ukraine should be. So it's two ways. It's both to represent the United States to Ukrainians and to listen to Ukrainians and report that back to Washington with recommendations.
0: I don't know if this is a fair question, but during the time you spent in Ukraine, could you have imagined a future 15 years down the road where there would be a full-scale war happening in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine?
1: No. Perfectly fair question. No. so I was there twice. I was there in 2006, 2009, as you just described, and I went back um, as kind of acting ambassador. So we'll say, get to that. You're going to get to that. Yes, yes, I went back <laughs> in 2019. Uh, but it, in the first time that we're talking about now, no. Um, Ukraine then, like now, <clears throat> was a real democracy, raucous, uh, serious debates, uh, disagreements among Ukrainians, um, strong disagreements about uh, among Ukrainians. At that time, this is kind of hard to... Remember, but at that time, a good portion of Ukrainians thought that the best direction for Ukraine was toward Russia. The second largest political party um, in Ukraine, when I was there the first time, was unabashedly pro Russian. You know, there are a lot of Ukrainians, you know, solid Ukrainians, let's be clear, uh, no matter what language they speak, they're Ukrainians. Some speak Russian, some speak Ukrainian, most speak Ukrainian. Now almost all speak Ukrainian. We'll come back to that, too. Uh, But at the time, you know, there were a lot of Ukrainians who spoke Russian and a lot of Ukrainians who had business ties, family ties, you know, criminal connections, you know, all kinds of of reasons that they would look toward Russia. Uh, In particular, these are Ukrainians who live in the eastern and southern parts of the country. That was in 2006, 2009. The rest of the country then was very much oriented, and this is the majority of Ukrainians. very much oriented towards Europe. Um, They were convinced and now are totally convinced that Ukraine's place is in Europe. And that was the debate. That was a real debate. And those debates had to do with language, Russian Ukrainian, had to do with NATO, whether to be in NATO or not, had to do with European Union, Um, The Russians were interested in having the Ukrainians join their organizations, and it was a real debate. Today, there is no debate. Today, it's Europe, it's NATO, it's Ukrainian language, uh, with tolerance for other languages. But let's just be real clear. They are Ukrainians.
0: Did the current lack of debate happen before or after the invasion? In other words, did the invasion happen because Russia saw Ukraine slipping away, or did the consensus become we need to be closer to Europe and NATO because of what's happened in the war? Both, both.
1: Um, Putin, it's not clear that he speaks for or represents all of Russians, all all of Russia or all Russians, but he did see Ukraine slipping away, rightly so. It was accurate what he saw. Ukraine was indeed moving towards Europe. In fact, is that prompted, that movement towards Europe uh, in 2014 prompted the annexation, the invasion of Crimea, the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014, um, because the pro-Russian Ukrainian president, a man named Viktor Yanukovych, in 2013 was acknowledging the direction that most Ukrainians wanted to take. He was acknowledging, maybe against his better judgment, this pro-Russian Ukrainian president was reluctantly moving toward signing an agreement with the European Union, the so-called association agreement uh, with the European Union, with a free trade agreement as part of it. And he was about to sign in in the fall of 2013. Sign this document and get this whole process going. President Putin noticed at that time, a little late, that Ukraine was about to take a big step toward Europe, and he, Putin, was about to lose any opportunity to try to grab Ukraine back into the Soviet Russian Tsarist empire. And so he acted. So he acted. Putin acted, and, and by acting, exactly the second part of your question— he consolidated the view in Ukraine that Europe was the destination. He consolidated the view that Russia was the enemy. So Ukrainians, as I say, in 2006, 2009, dealt with Russians as cousins or you know, family members or business partners. In 2014, Putin invades their country, kills Ukrainians, and Ukrainians react in horror. Um, and they say, wait, this man's killing us. Mm. Um, and that began this real consolidation, this crystallization of the, of the determination of the Ukrainians uh, to go towards Europe, to leave Russia. And that, of course, was totally consolidated um, on February 24, 2022.
0: Uh, you mentioned you were back in Ukraine in 2019. You were there as uh, chargé d'affaires. Am I saying it right? You're saying it's, exactly it's not, right. It's not a word I don't get to say No, no, no. This is what the French um, say. You were, um, you were brought in by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, as I understand it. Correct. Um, was that a surprise to you?
1: It was a surprise. It was a total surprise because the reason that Secretary Pompeo asked me to go back out was that his boss, President Trump, had fired the ambassador to Ukraine, his ambassador to Ukraine, Masha Yovanovitch, Ambassador Yovanovitch, with no explanation. So it was, yes, a big surprise um, when they fired her and then were looking around for someone else to go back out and be the acting ambassador out there. The reason they wanted to send somebody else out at that time, uh, having pulled the ambassador home, was because President Zelensky had just been elected um, and he was about to be inaugurated. Uh, he was about to, to form his new government. And the United States, like all nations, but the United States wanted to be sure that there was an American voice, um, again, doing the things that we talked about earlier, Mike, both listening to Ukrainians but also telling Ukrainians kind of our views about um, what we think um, their best direction would be. And they wanted an American voice out there, and having pulled the ambassador out, they needed someone else to go, number one. Number two, and this gets to your question about surprise, um, the embassy was surprised. We were all surprised. No one could tell the people working at the U.S. embassy in Kiev why their ambassador had been suddenly pulled out, called home, called back to Washington. And so they were unsettled, uh, confused, uh, somewhat demoralized, and they wanted— Another reason they wanted me to go back out, they wanted someone to go out there who had been there before.
0: You were a known quantity. I was a known
1: quantity in both places, in both in Washington and in Kiev. Um mm-hmm. And so I, I could do some of that function.
0: Did you have any uh, understanding or knowledge of uh, President Zelensky from his life in TV and comedy because you spent time in Ukraine? Or when he became president, was that when the first time you Googled him? Well, so I presume you googled him. <laughs> probably so. I'm sure
1: I did. This is what we do. Um, but no, I had uh, met him very briefly during his presidential campaign. Okay, I had been again before being asked to go back out as kind of the acting ambassador that spring, uh, late spring. In the early spring, when they, there, were, there were elections there, I mean, there were two rounds of the presidential elections, the way the Ukrainians do it. And if no one wins the, uh, outright the first round, they have a second round. So I was there as an international observer, election observer. And with some indication of, uh, of where Vladimir Zelensky would vote, I was present at the, one of the polling places. And it turns out that he came right on by. And so we had a brief, uh, brief encounter there, so so that was the first time. But then, no, really, and uh, uh, to sit down with him and have conversations uh, happened when I arrived as the acting ambassador.
0: What were your first impressions of him in that role?
1: Charming, uh, Mike. I don't know if you or many of your listeners um, have had the opportunity to watch a TV series, a Ukrainian TV series.
0: I haven't. I'm familiar with it in principle.
1: It is brilliant, Uh, it tells the story of a a Ukrainian high school teacher in contemporary Ukraine uh, who is outraged by what he sees in the government, in the Ukrainian government, the oligarchs and the corruption, and he is so angry um, that one of his rants is caught on video by one of his students, and in the show now, in the TV show, Uh, this modest uh, high school teacher um, has his his rant against the government, against corruption, go viral, as they say, and he's elected president in this show. Wow! So here's Vladimir, Zelensky, and of course Vladimir Zelensky plays the high school teacher, having become the uh, president. And in the TV series, then he takes on corruption and takes on the oligarchs and uh, and cleans up. He has challenges, but it is it's it's amusing. Because he is a comedian. I mm-hmm. mean, he runs, he owns, he 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 is the he was the CEO of this entertainment company, but he's also the lead actor, and he did a brilliant job. So the Ukrainians knew him, and I could see that when I first met him as well. I mean, he's, you know, uh, comedians, we, we know, some, you know, uh, John Stewart kind of. A way. He's got to be smart to do this kind of thing, so was, that was clear. But he was also just charming, and I would also say— when I first met him, he was brand new on the job. Never had had a government job before, hadn't been in the army, hadn't been in the government, um, had been only in the private sector, done very well, reasonably well. He was not old, he was, he's not an oligarch. I mean, he's not you know very wealthy, but he was a, he was comfortable. Um, but uh, without that government experience and knowing what needed to be done, so he came in, in 2019. The Russians had invaded. We remember in 2014. Uh, They will again invade in 2022, but that—so he was elected in the middle there. While there was this low-level war going on in the East, and he came in—and this is an answer to your question, was he kind of like a bit naively, but clearly with the motivation to do two things. One was stop the war, end the war on Ukrainian terms. And he thought, again, maybe a little naively, but certainly genuinely thought that if he could sit down with President Putin, that they could work it out, that he could work something out, and that he would be able to get the Russians out of the country and they would work it out. Again, the right instinct, but naive. Um, uh, the second thing he wanted to do, equally right instinct, equally difficult, was to eliminate corruption. It was not coincidence, uh, it was not without reason. He was playing the role. He the role. He played the role, the, he played the role. Uh, yeah. Because he read the country. He knew what the country wanted. The country does want to get rid of
0: corruption. That, that show is resonating because people wanted that. Exactly. Yeah. I am convinced that uh, that helped him win.
1: He won 73% in a free and fair election. La- Again, I was an election observer, and I saw the election. It was free and fair, and he won 73 73- over the sitting president. He ran against and defeated 73 per- by 73% against Petro Poroshenko, the sitting president.
0: Were you actually listening to the call between him and President Trump that caused the stir that it wound up causing? I know you were somehow privy to what it contained, I, from what I understand. I was not privy to what it contained until. Until the news broke? The news broke. Okay. Uh, until, uh,
1: really, until President Trump released the transcript. Understood. So, so, okay. So I was the ambassador out there, right? I was on the ground. Uh, it was certainly. No, I didn't listen. I was not in on that phone call. I knew it was being set up. I knew it was happening. Uh, but I was actually, as I recall, I was out on the line of contact. I was out on the front line um, visiting the troops in the uh, in the far east of, of the country when that
0: happened. Hmm. Did the disarray that came from that and the impeachment inquiry that came after that and just the domestic turmoil that has sort of been going on ever since, and it was preceding it too, I think it's fair to say, did that in any way lead to what wound up being the invasion of Ukraine? Was the perception that we were in disarray a factor in invading Ukraine?
1: I imagine—I don't know what was in President Putin's head when he decided to invade Ukraine. A lot of people who, who have studied him more closely than I have tried to figure out what was going on in his head when he made that decision. And they tell me, and it sounds right to me, that his focus on getting back Ukraine, he thought Ukraine was just really part of Russia. He thinks um, that Ukraine is just part of it. He thinks that there is no such thing as Ukraine, that there are no Ukrainians. they are just little Russians that are down there. And so that was the basic rationale, motivation for President Putin to invade Ukraine, but you're right, there are other things that he probably took into account. Some of it may have been his, Putin's question as to whether or not the Americans would support Ukraine if he, Putin, invaded. You remember also that in August of 2021, so the invasion was in February of 2022, in August, the previous August, um, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan in kind of a chaotic manner, And Putin undoubtedly noticed. Other people noticed as well. President Xi, for example, probably noticed. And President Putin may well have concluded from that episode, maybe others as well, including maybe this phone call, including the other turmoil that was going. So Putin may have concluded, well, you know, the Americans don't have the stomach. They don't have the will. They don't have the determination to support their allies that, uh, that they have said they would. And so that could have contributed, but I think the main, again, Mike, the main reason, the the focus of President Putin was to dominate Ukraine.
0: Does whether or not Ukraine winds up in NATO, is that part of his calculus as well? I talked to a, a professor at a university here in Florida, and he studies Ukraine, and he said, you know, having Ukraine become a NATO country is something that Putin will not take.
1: He may not have a choice. Um, Putin may not have anything to say about whether or not Ukraine goes into NATO. That's a, really a decision not for him. He has no say. Putin has no say. Well, sure, say yeah, yeah. The, that decision is in the first instance for the Ukrainians to apply, which they have. They have made it very clear, in particular over the last two years, that they've been invaded by this full-scale invasion, uh, that they, the only way they're going to be secure is in NATO. So it's, in the first instance, up to the Ukrainians. But in the second in- instance, it's up to all the NATO members, all the current NATO members. Russia doesn't get a vote. Uh, Putin doesn't get a say in that. But you're right, um, and the professor's right, that he won't be happy. Uh, because going back to what I said earlier about what happened in 2014, when the previous Ukrainian president was about to sign an agreement with the European Union and he and, and Putin decided to invade Crimea, invade Ukraine for that, he was worried, probably, Putin was worried that uh, Ukraine was slipping out of his grasp. And if it joined the European Union or if it joined NATO, then it was gone forever. Uh, Ukraine would never again be part of, of Russia. And he, that's, as I say, um, that's an anathema to him, but he doesn't get a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can try to make that difficult, and he did. And, you know, he invaded. And that's making it very difficult. While there's an active war going on, Ukraine can't join NATO. Ukraine can apply and start the process, but it can't join. And, and so President Putin has, has done that.
0: So um, at least initially, it seems like uh, Ukraine did get the kind of support from the United States and its allies in Europe, um, both financial and to some degree military. Um, Do you think that surprised Putin?
1: Yes, I think it
0: did. Uh, Again, he
1: probably thought that the Americans didn't have the stomach. They didn't have the stomach in Afghanistan, and why should they have uh, the stomach to oppose him? Uh, in Ukraine. So I think it probably did surprise him. Uh, Although President Biden, in December of 2021, again, so that's what, three months before the actual invasion uh, in in February, President Biden called President Putin and told him that we were going to support the Ukrainians in three ways. We said, number one, we're going to provide him the weapons that they need. President Biden told President Putin. Number two, we're going to reinforce NATO in particular on the eastern flank of NATO, against you, Mr. Putin. And number three, we're going to put serious sanctions on, sanctions so serious that, that, that they will be more serious than anything we've put on any, any other country. So President Biden tried to make it clear uh, to President Putin what would
0: be the response, um, uh, and, and he did it anyway. So it appears... From my layman's perspective, that support for Ukraine in Washington is starting to, if not wane, become, you know, questioned, argued over. Um, Looks like the next round of funding won't happen anytime soon, or at least not until Congress comes back, if I've got that right. Um, What happens if financial aid dries up? What happens to Ukraine? Let's get to your prognosis now in the subject of your talk today.
1: If we fail— um, to provide the Ukrainians the financial support, economic support, the military support, the ammunition, the weapons. If we fail, um, they will have a very hard time winning. If, on the other hand, we can provide this support, um, then they can win. They can win in, so, in ways that they, they understand um, what winning is. But but Mike, you mentioned that um, uh, there is a there is a decline, the beginning of a decline uh, in support for Ukraine from very high levels. I mean, it's you know the, the United States, the American people, the Congress, on a bipartisan basis, um, have supported Ukraine very strongly since for, for two years. Um, we remember when President Zelensky first visited, he, he received a hero's welcome, uh, not long after the invasion, and he spoke to a joint uh, session of Congress and uh, uh, standing ovations and that kind of, and the support, the military support that, uh, that came from, from those visits and from, from that time was very strong. It was very strong. We've provided a lot in terms of weapons, but also in terms of economic support. Um, and the American people totally supported that as well. Now, that high-level support has started to come down, yes. However, we're still at—we're still—the uh, the American people still support Ukraine like 65 percent in the latest poll that I saw this morning. Sixty-five percent of Americans still support Ukraine, um, and I am absolutely convinced um, that when the uh, assistance package— which includes both economic and military support for Ukraine, when that gets to a vote, it will pass overwhelmingly in the Senate, no doubt. It will also pass in the House of Representatives um, on a bipartisan basis. That is, Republicans and Democrats will both vote for it. And it will pass in the House um, if it can get a vote. That's the trick. Um, um, And the new speaker who did meet with President Zelensky this last time, um, President Zelensky has now been here three times, a big... The big first visit, and then two visits in the last two months, um, to try to make the case, try to reinforce the support um, for Ukraine in the American people, and in the Congress, and in the administration. Um, uh, And he knows, President Zelensky knows that uh, that there is this bipartisan support, um, and that if it can get to a vote, um, that it will pass in the House as well. What are the
0: chances it doesn't get to a vote?
1: I think they're low I think they'll get to a vote um, um, president Zelensky did meet with the new speaker uh, Speaker Johnson um, and and the speaker indicated support as you know that's uh, nothing simple um, in the Congress and what has made it very complicated is the whole question about immigration and border security
0: it's so they're been, our it's but, all been tied together it's right?
1: been tied together um, currently. Um, and that has complicated it, and that that will make it difficult, um, not impossible, to to get it to a vote. Um, and as we know, even as we speak, uh, the Senate is still in session. The House is out of session. The House has gone home for the holidays. But the Senate, where this compromise uh, between Republicans and Democrats on border control, on immigration reform, uh, is taking place. So that compromise is under... And I believe... Um, that they will find a solution, a compromise, uh, and that will then release the package for a vote. The package includes support for Ukraine and Israel, by the way, as well as this border uh, agreement. Um, That will release it to a vote in the Senate, and it will pass. um, And it, I hope, will release it for a vote in the House, and it will pass there.
0: Well, that is all the time we have for the show proper, but I have some more questions if you have a few more yeah, I minutes. I do, I do. Let Mike. me go ahead and thank you now, though. Uh, thanks to my guest, Ambassador William Taylor, is vice president of Europe and Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he served as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. And in 2019, he served as charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in mm-hmm. Kiev. Ambassador Taylor, thank you so much for your time and insights on this really tangled and important topic.
1: Mike, thank you very much for the opportunity to to talk to you and your listeners. This is an important topic. Um, It's one of crucial national security import um,
0: to the United States. So I'm very glad you're, you're spending time on it. You can hear the rest of our conversation, which covers what Ukraine considers victory, his perception of NATO's resolve, his concern about what's unfolding in Israel and Gaza and how it could lead to a broader conflict, and his concerns about the health of our democracy here in the United States at WGCU.org slash GCL. Ambassador Taylor was in southwest Florida to give a talk for the Naples Council on World Affairs titled 600-plus days of battle with Volodymyr and Vladimir. WGCU will bribe podcast his is Talk on Sunday, December 31st at 8 p.m. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Connery. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.